Hello, and welcome to the Logistics Management Podcast Series. My name is Jeff Berman. I'm Group News Editor for Logistics Management Magazine and the Peerless Media Supply Chain Group. Today, it's a real pleasure to welcome back John Larkin to our podcast. John is a longtime friend of Logistics Management Magazine. And on a more personal note, he also hails from the same area as I do, the great capital district of New York. Um, a little bit about John. Uh, John serves as an operating partner at Clarendon Capital, where he focuses on deal sourcing, capital raising, and the creation of value within portfolio companies in the freight, transportation, and logistics sectors. Previously, John was at Leg Mason, which was later sold to Stiefel Nicholson Company in October 2001 to form and lead the firm's entry into the transportation markets. And for 17 years, he headed up Stiefel's transportation and logistics research effort. In January of 2018, he transitioned from Stiefel's research department to Stiefel's investment banking team. And while in investment banking, he advised numerous publicly traded and privately held transportation and logistics companies, as well as many financial sponsors with investments in the transportation and logistics space. Over the years, John has been recognized as an all-star analyst by Institutional Investor Magazine numerous times, and also a Wall Street Journal all-star analyst on several occasions. He's also been awarded multiple Star Mind Stock Picking and Earnings Estimate Accuracy Awards. Hey, John, welcome back to our podcast. Hey, Jeff, it's always a pleasure to speak to you uh, <clears throat> for two reasons. Number one, because you're from beautiful upstate New York, where I'm sitting uh, today, uh, oh, where excellent. the temperature is, uh, I don't know that it's gotten out of the 40s today. Oh, boy. It's, uh, feeling very much like fall, and uh, here in the Adirondack Mountains, the leaves are already turning colors. Very nice. Very nice. Well, it's uh, it's great to have you on. It's not too often where I'm sitting in Maine and have warmer weather than someone else. So, it and is the other reason uh, before I forget it is that you're a very knowledgeable person when it comes to uh, all things freight and logistics. So it's always a pleasure to be talking to somebody uh, with your depth of knowledge. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate that uh, very much. So, John, why don't we keep it? keep it basic to start with. It's been a while since we talked and boy, it has a lot happened uh, since then. Um, you know, why don't we kind of look at the freight economy? I'd like to hear about it from your perspective in terms of what, what are some of the no, more notable things you're seeing out there in the market, maybe as it relates to volumes, as it relates to things in certain regions, uh, modes. I'll kind of give you a, a blank slate, if you will, and then we can drill down to some other stuff from there. Yeah, well, it certainly has been a topsy-turvy couple of years. Uh, it was about two and a half years ago when the COVID pandemic uh, literally shut down uh, most of the economy, and uh, everyone was very fearful that uh, it would create all kinds of problems for carriers, shippers, receivers, uh, logistics companies, etc., yeah. But lo and behold, within a couple of months, uh, volume really picked up dramatically. And we ended up with uh, two years of the best freight market conditions we'd ever seen. And that seemed to be driven as much by uh, consumers uh, buying uh, behavior changing. Uh, they, they basically reduced 
the amount of services they were buying, which doesn't require much freight transportation, and uh, ended up buying a, a lot of goods uh, that they could enjoy themselves using outdoors, like boats, snowmobiles, motorcycles. They, they uh, also spent a lot of time fixing up their home office and often adding another room to their house or buying a house out in the country or in the mountains somewhere uh, so they could work from uh, home, their new home uh, that was more pleasant than maybe their city home. And that just generated a huge amount of freight in a world where some people were afraid to go to work due to uh, the social distancing and, and masking and vaccination requirements. Sure. So uh, it was a very tight supply-demand world, really all the way up until things began to slow down here in the last couple of months as uh, the COVID pandemic has waned and uh, people have started to spend uh, some of their income on traveling, um, hotels, restaurants, airline tickets, etc. If you've been flying lately, you know that just about every airplane out there uh, has a load factor in the 90% range, 95% range. In fact, many of the planes are sold out altogether. Sure. So, uh, you know, people have scaled back on uh, goods um, that they uh, had been buying during COVID, and uh, that has created a bit of a slowdown um, out there in the freight economy. Um, in some cases, uh, that, that caught people by surprise and their inventories became bloated um, and they reduced their orders to replenish inventory because sales just weren't taking place. And then on top of that, you had uh, rampant inflation, uh, which was due to uh, a whole variety of uh, issues uh, but people only have so much money to spend, and if everything costs eight to ten percent more, you've got to cut back uh, somewhere. Absolutely, and that also has had an impact on the amount of freight moving. And then, last but not least, uh, interest rates have been rising uh, largely to combat inflation, and that has really slowed down uh, the interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy, like uh, the housing market, the auto industry, etc where financing is a, is a big part of the equation. So it's, it's softening up how much further it may soften. We don't know. Uh, a lot of that will depend upon you know, how much government spending there is and how much yeah. further the Fed takes rates up. Yeah. And that's kind of an unknown at this point. I mean, but it'd be interesting to see what happens. Uh, on a bit more of a, uh, a seasonal uh, scale, John, the 2022 peak season, I, I would like to get your insight on that. I know the last few years it's been a, anything but normal feeling uh, for a while there. And as you had outlined in the uh, previous comments, it kind of felt like when everyone was buying everything over COVID and stuck at home, that it was kind of like a peak season all the time feel. Um now things are a bit different, uh, and you had mentioned inflation costs are going up. Uh, we we see uh, we see freight shifting from West Coast ports to East Coast ports eventually. Um, with all that as sort of a backdrop, how how do you sort of assess or gauge where where things stand from a peak season perspective for this year? Well, I think I think we'll still have uh, 
a, a, a peak, although I think it's going to be quite muted. Um, you know, we're not going to uh, eliminate the holidays. Uh, people <laughs> still celebrate the holidays, thankfully. Yep. Um, but they're going to have to, you know, cut back a little bit just because the the price of things they might buy as a present for their family or member of their family, uh, you know, have really risen quite quite high, quite uh, dramatically here mm -hmm. um, in the last twelve to eighteen months during this period of inflation. So, I think uh, with inventories generally being pretty replenished for most retail goods. Uh, at this point, and with people having to tighten their belt a bit, that uh, the best we can hope for is kind of a muted uh, peak season. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That 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 makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, and when when we look at uh, the rate environment, and and why don't we just stick with truckload in, in this instance, John? When we look at rates and pricing within the truckload segment, you know, now the capacity obviously is not as tight as it was a year ago at this time. Uh, there's been a lot of made about shippers taking steps to lock in more favorable contract rates. Um, and as we have now seen, uh, spot rates are back below contract rates uh, when you look at data from DAT and, and some other sources. Uh, how do you sort of view that situation? Um, are we are we kind of, has the pendulum, has the pendulum fully swung back in, in that in that instance? Yeah, the, the, the carriers really uh, smartly took advantage of the really tight supply demand dynamic out there during uh, the COVID times. And uh, given how hard it was to recruit and retain drivers, they felt like they had to take rates up and share a pretty good chunk of that uh, rate increase with their drivers. Uh, many carriers uh, adjusted their rates up 15, 20, 25% and, and shared uh, maybe half of that with their drivers to try and alleviate the perennial uh, driver shortage. Mm -hmm. uh, but but carriers who uh, blew their freight budgets uh, during this period of rate increase um, now sense that there's a little yeah. excess uh, supply out there and that uh, carriers are willing to give back some of those rate increases. So, so many shippers are, are putting their freight out for bid here in hopes of getting uh, rates that might be 5 or 10% lower uh, than uh, the rates they've been paying in the first part of this year. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, in sticking just with, uh, parallel to the pandemic uh, themes we've been discussing, you know, as things have gotten back to normal for the most part, more consumers, John, have been spending uh, their their disposable income, that is, on more kind of service economy related things like vacations, uh, football games, baseball games, uh, movies, concerts, etc. And I'm just wondering if I could get a sense from you of how, how you think maybe that has impacted things from in, in terms of demand and, uh, and, and tonnage. Because, uh, I mean, while they're spending, they're not spending on something physical, they're spending on an experience. And that in turn, would stand to reason would impact uh, volume trends. Is, is that fair? Yeah, there's there's no question. As I was uh, suggesting uh, earlier, people bought a lot of durable goods uh, back during the pandemic uh, since they couldn't uh, go out to eat at a restaurant, couldn't travel on vacation, uh, you know, couldn't stay in a hotel. Uh, so instead they bought a snowmobile or a boat or a new car. 
Yep. And uh, most of these uh, durable goods have a lifespan of more than one or two years. So if you, you know, for example, bought a snowmobile uh, a year and a half ago, you probably don't need another new one uh, this year. Absolutely. Um, so. I think this is a, a big point about uh, what's happening in the freight world that we're seeing maybe not a complete shift back uh, towards the service sector, but a, but a pretty major shift back to the service sector, which has really reduced the amount of freight uh, out there available for carriers to haul. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's definitely uh, was a, a bit of a theme at uh, at this week's CSCMP conference down in Nashville, for sure. Um, I wanted to shift gears for a moment, John, over to uh, M&A activity, mergers and acquisition for those listening that may not be familiar with that term. Um, You know, as usual, John, there's really no shortage of M&A activity within freight, freight transportation, logistics and supply chain. Um, You know, I was just wondering how lasting do you see that trend being? Uh, We always uh, talk about it. It kind of feels very permanent in in some cases, especially when you look at the size, scope, and scale of some of these announced deals. Yeah, that's it's a good point, and it has to do, I think, with a couple of things. First of all, over the last two years, with all the rate increases and all the volume to be hauled, um, companies have generally done very well, so their balance sheets are in good shape. Uh, They're flush with cash. They've got a lot of borrowing uh, capacity available. And since they really can't grow organically, given how difficult it is to hire people that really want to work and follow directions, um, instead to to grow and create shareholder value in the case of public companies, they're using that uh, capital strength to go out and buy companies that either expand their geographic focus expand their range of services offered um, and uh, that, that basically grow their their cash flow, their EBITDA and their earnings per share, which in theory translates into uh, uh, increased valuation for their company. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it seems like almost every, every month there's a, there's a deal of some significance being announced uh, or at least it feels like it. Um, I wanted to transition a bit, John. Uh, late last week, um, the uh, there was an na- announcement that uh, United States uh, rail carriers, predominantly the Class Ones, that is, uh, and the twelve different railroad labor unions had all reached tentative labor agreements, and uh, a lot was made out of it. It got a lot of ink. It got a lot of attention. Um, crisis averted in a way, although obviously the deals still need to be ratified. So hopefully that's just a formality at this point. Um, it was just interesting, though, because those deals, uh, the deal was struck at a time when the rails have uh, been hearing loud and clear from, or you know, the STB, and uh, that's the Service Transportation Board, and, and obviously shipper customers, uh, a lot of complaints uh, about service and stuff like that. So I guess a two-part question there, uh, your thoughts on a deal being reached and sort of what's happening uh, on the rails as we look at this, the service environment. Well, uh, you know, certainly we had the, the cooling off period uh, due to the implementation of the Presidential Emergency Board, mm-hmm. uh, but that, that was about to expire, um, and, and the unions, uh, all 13 or 14 of them, which, which is sort of a nightmare 
to negotiate with that many different unions if you're yes. the head of labor relations at a railroad. Can you imagine? It's it's tough enough to negotiate with one or two, but you yeah. know, get up into the teens and it's a it's a real challenge. Um, and they all have different needs and desires and goals and objectives. So it's it's a real challenge to get all those deals done before a deadline. But but they got it done. And, um, you know, the, the, the reality is that the railroads have been really pushing the operating plan that was popularized by Hunter Harrison, uh, Precision Scheduled Railroading. Yes. Uh, which really focuses on longer, heavier, less frequent, more scheduled trains. And um, those those heavy tonnage trains can sometimes create uh, congestion at terminals. Terminals aren't really set up to handle trains that long or that hauling that much freight. And it's it's created some indigestion throughout the system. The rails, even though their pay and benefits are better than you find in a lot of sectors, have still struggled, like every other sector in America, uh, to find uh, people who really want to get out there and work hard and will follow directions. Sure. Um, so, you know, the, the, the service issue with railroads um, is, is partly labor-related, um, it's partly precision scheduled railroading related and partly due to the fact that in order to increase capacity, they need to make uh, long-term capital decisions uh, on projects that sometimes take two or three years uh, to build out. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're afraid sometimes to proceed with those projects because by the time they finish the project, the need for the incremental capacity may have uh, gone away. Yeah. So, um, you know, they, they, they try to be prudent about it, but um, it, it's a little bit dip, more difficult for railroads to add capacity than it is for trucking companies to, to buy more trucks and recruit more drivers. Not that that's all that easy in and of itself. No, definitely not in up and down cycles that that's pretty consistent. Um, just sh- shifting from a uh, rail to uh to over the road, John. Uh, AB five has uh certainly gotten its fair share of attention. Uh, a lot of moving parts there. Obviously, uh the uh in the impact uh, in California uh, not insignificant in, in the very in the very least. Um, I know you were just at the Intermodal Expo IANA last week. Uh, what was sort of the buzz about AB five? What are sort of the hot ticket uh, themes or issues that uh that you learned about while, while you were there? Well, there, there are um, fears on the part of shippers uh, to really bring freight into California because they're fearful that there may be a work stoppage uh, due to owner operators, uh, you know, slowing things down like they did in Oakland a few weeks back, or they're fearful that the ILWU, which is working without a contract uh, at the ports, uh, might strike. They don't have to worry about the railroad striking anymore. That was a fear mm-hmm. up until just last week, yeah. as we just talked about. But I, but I think at the end of the day, uh, this AB5 uh, bill that was passed by the Care, uh, California legislature a few years ago is still yet to be tested in the courts. Uh, some of the, the very smart transportation attorneys out there have concocted 
different operating strategies that can be used uh, to, in theory, be compliant with AB5. Uh, but but none of those uh, operating strategies have been tested in the courts. So it's not clear whether those will fly, so to speak, and how this is all going to shake out over time. So uh, the, the drayage world on the West Coast is still fraught with all kinds of uncertainty and mm-hmm. lack of clarity at the moment. So, so people are generally operating the way they have operated in hopes that there'll be more clarity uh, coming forward here in the near term. Some have shifted to some of these other uh, operating strategies that the attorneys have suggested, but again, those haven't been tested in the court and may not fly. And then uh, there are a few companies uh, that have just bitten the bullet and have gone out and um, you know bought their own trucks and hired their own uh, direct uh, company employee drivers. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, contingency plans seem seem to be a good approach. Uh, you know, you, you got to, freight still needs to move, obviously. Um, just a, two more qu- real quick ones before we wrap up, John. Um, it, when we look at this, the state of inventory management, uh, yeah, I think we mentioned earlier in the call about how th- inventories were getting really high, especially over the course of pandemic. Things seem to be, if you look at inventory to sales ratios for the last few months, I think they're approaching a bit more normal levels. So we've heard and seen uh, about uh, heavy discounting uh, by retailers in order to make sure they have shelf space for new new items and merchandise. Where do things? How do you sort of view the the, the inventory outlook as as shippers and, and large retailers go about managing things? Yeah, you know, on the one hand, we still have supply chain problems that have created shortages of things like uh, computer chips that have had a big impact on the production of automobiles. When it comes to uh, the kinds of things that you find on the shelf at Walmart or Target, um, I think those inventories uh, very quickly became bloated um, after being largely depleted uh, during the heat of COVID. But as Mm -hmm. COVID waned and people shifted their buying patterns to buy less stuff and to buy more services, uh, all of a sudden uh, the glut appeared pretty quickly. Um, And that was written about a lot over the last six months. I think some of that has been uh, drained down uh, to the point uh, approaching a normalcy. And uh, maybe that puts us in a position as we get into 2023 next year to have a more normal year with with less volatility and and more normal uh seasonal demand throughout the entire year yeah yeah definitely that's uh that's uh it's going to be an interesting holiday shopping season and uh where inventories uh end up will be be interesting to follow um just to wrap up, uh, final question here. You know, around this time of year, John, I always get a lot of emails ask uh, with people offering up sort of their top ten predictions for for the next year. Uh, now, we're not going to ask you for a full ten, but if you could identify two or three things that are going to be big or that people should keep an eye out for in twenty twenty three, what what would they be? Yeah, I think um, in twenty twenty three sort of the, the big uh, things to, to watch out for will be 
the labor issue, is that going to uh, become uh, less of a problem and challenge for people? Um, you know, are you going to have to pay, you know, big numbers to attract talent to your organization? Um, or uh, alternatively, are we going to return back to maybe where we were before the pandemic with respect to the labor situation? Mm-hmm. I think the whole energy uh, story uh, will play out uh, interestingly here, you know, with uh, the current administration not really being uh, very supportive of a lot of uh, energy production. The, the price of energy has gone up quite a bit with consumption uh, being cut back. Um, it does appear that prices have, have pulled back some, but not all the way. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, just how energy prices uh, play out. I think that has a big role to play in the establishment of inflation. And um, I think probably the the, the last thing um, that I think we need to look out for is, you know, how the election turns out here in November. That'll set the tone sure. uh, for, for more regulations, less energy development, uh, if say the Democrat Party maintains power in the House and the Senate, or if the the Republicans are are to, you know, gain a majority in one of those two houses of Congress, uh, then I think maybe people will become a little more confident that maybe, you know, pro-business policies will come back into vogue again. And uh, we'll see a little bit uh, of additional economic growth next year. Uh, but all that remains okay. to be seen. Uh, there's a long right. way to go before we get to the first Tuesday in November. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, listen, John, this has been great. Um, on behalf of Logistics Management Magazine and as well as the uh, Peerless Media Supply Chain Group, I'd like to offer up a big thanks for uh, joining us again today. All righty. It's been my pleasure and uh, hope to run into you out there on the, the conference circuit one of these days soon. Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I, that would be that would be terrific. Um, and for those of you listening, um, please, uh, if you want to uh, learn more about John, uh, he's got a, a solid presence on LinkedIn. You, you can find him there. Um, and for those of you on Twitter, please go ahead and give us a follow if you're not already. Simply at Logistics MGMT. And also, if uh, you're not subscribed to this podcast, please go ahead and do so wherever you get your podcast. Just go ahead and look for Supply Chain 24-7. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day, and we'll catch up with you next time.